Well, good morning, everyone. As, as Brett stated, uh, I'm Pastor Jesse. I serve as the executive pastor here. And this is kind of a special day for me because uh, the month of October marks four years since my ordination and being privileged to serve you as a body. And so that's, that's exciting to me. Most of what I do is behind the scenes as executive pastor. Um, so just a couple times a year, Pastor Brett and Pastor Tim let me out to be able to preach. So we've concluded our Revelation series, and man, that was really good. As a person who's been through that, um, it can be so divisive, and it, it can be so technical, um, yet be so fraught with error, because it's only the mind of God that knows what will happen. And so it was good to look through that. But we looked at being conquerors, the strong identity that we as believers in Christ are conquerors. It's our hope and it's our joy now. So let me ask you this, after we went through that series, when we would sit in here and we would hear God's truth and we would understand more about who we are in Him, we were edified. How long after you left here did you feel like conquerors? Did you walk out singing onward Christian soldiers, marching as to war, and carry that on through the week? Probably not. So what was it that changed that feeling for you? So my question to you this morning that we're going to look more at is, what is your misery? We as Americans don't use that word much. It was a really bad movie in 1990, if you were alive back then. But some people might say, well, that sounds harsh. That's, that's a strong word to use. Well, it does have those implications, but let's look more at the definition so that we can accurately understand the word. So Webster's describes this or defines this as a state of suffering and want that is the result of poverty or affliction, a circumstance, a thing, a place that causes suffering or discomfort, or a state of great unhappiness and emotional distress. So I want to ask you again, what's your misery? Maybe it's your marriage. There's a lot of disappointment, a lot of expectations that go into that. Maybe it's your, your job, family. Maybe there's a relationship that really seems to cause you suffering and struggle. Maybe it's something that is not ongoing now. Maybe it's the history of trauma or the past. Maybe it's a spiritual oppression. Maybe it's struggling with depression or some sort of men mental illness, mental health issue. So with this definition, with this understanding, really everyone has something they struggle with. Everyone has a misery. But maybe you're one of our young people here and life's gone pretty well so far. And you can honestly say, hey, I don't feel like I have one. Well, praise the Lord for that. But maybe you can listen closely to my words so that you're prepared to help and love someone who is or to prepare yourself for future trials and struggles. So thinking about our identity that we've learned about, we're conquerors, so why don't we triumph now? It's a very impatient, Americanized way to think about things. But I want to encourage us, because we're not consumers, we're partakers, and Scripture tells us that. We're laborers in the field. We're workers in the harvest. We're not watching vicariously. We're living victoriously. 
But that also means that we share in the suffering of Christ as he paid for the harvest with his life and his righteousness. So I want to tell you a little about why I wanted to speak on today's topic. It's been a tough four years for me. Many of you know this. So back injuries have really changed the way that I can do life. And it's caused a lot of frustration and a lot of struggle. And a lot of you have borne alongside me in that. And I love you for that and I appreciate you for that. But what this has done in me is it's created new perspectives on life, new priorities, but also seeing God's promises in a newer, deeper way. So as I read through scripture in this last year, I fell in love again with the story of Joseph. And there's a lot that we can learn from this, but specifically my pain and my injuries The challenges that it has brought have driven me deeper into my reliance on God. And through the brokenness, I see Scripture in a new light. So it's provided me encouragement and assurance to keep going when things hurt and pain is present. Because if God had been faithful to Joseph and all of his children along the way through the story of the Old Testament and through the story of history past then we can rest our hope that he will be faithful to us and to all those believers that will come as he can't change and our hope is placed in him. So I want to look at aspects of Joseph's story together to help make sense of our misery in light of the promise that we're conquerors. So a good clarification, we are blessed to have Tim preach week in and week out and he does so with excellence He's very talented. So preaching's not my strength. And if you've talked to me at length, I'll tell you that. I'll admit that up front. So I hope that you can consider this a love letter from your broken shepherd and that you'll hear God's truth in spite of my limitations. So with that being said, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 105. I'll read for us. So I, will, I alone will read. But I want you to look and listen as I do so. And we're going to start in verse 7 because it's good context. Psalm 105 tracks through the promises of God. And to that time that David writes them, tracks through how he's fulfilled those. So I want to read from 7 to 24. So here's the word of the Lord, church. Psalm 105, starting in verse 7. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance, when they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. And here's where we'll focus, 16 through 24. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of him, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions. 
to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence here in this place. We thank you for your spirit that ministers to each of us as we struggle through things. But not that it only ministers in times of trouble, but it teaches us in these times of truth where we need to hear what you have to say. So Lord, it is easy to be overcome and overwhelmed. We are weak and we are human. So we ask that you would gird us up, that you would encourage us, that you would edify us through your word, through the truth that comes from it. But that we would not just hear it, we need to put it on. We need to be encouraged by it, and we need to believe it, and we need to live as though our faith is placed in your truth. So help us to hear these words. Help us to hear your message. Help us to hear your truth through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to be referring to Joseph's story. We at Grace can struggle in the pulpit with timing or with teaching, and so 13 verses is a challenge for us time-wise. 13 chapters is almost impossible. So um, that's why I really honed in on Psalm 105, because it really looks to the struggle and the providence of what God did through the story of Joseph. And we're going to look at a very simple format of looking at the problem, the process, and the promise in that. But I encourage you to go home this week and read Genesis 37 through 50. So 37 through the end of the book of Genesis, there's so much in the story of Joseph, and it incorporates so much of how God brings his promise to make Israel a nation through it. So I hope you'll do that. But we're going to start here in verse 16. And so the text says, when he, or God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. Well, every good story needs a problem. It creates a need for a hero to overcome the problem through victory. So here in the text, it's very straightforward. There's a problem. There's worldwide hunger, starvation, and what seems like certain death approaching. Let's talk about the problem, though, because we're going to address a couple platitudes that we say even in the church that lead to a poor understanding of who God is and his power and his providence. So the first that's very commonly said, well, God wouldn't allow bad things to happen to his people. Sometimes we can always change that to say God doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. Well, he does. Now let's clarify, because specificity is important here, we are a sinful, fallen, broken world, and chaos, death, and destruction reign supreme unless God intervenes. So here we are. We're going to look at James 1, 16, and 17, and I hope that this is going to make sense, but what I want you to see as we read this is bad things do happen, but not for the reason where we blame God. God withholds his goodness and his grace, and he allows sin and destruction to work its work for his purpose and his glory. So James 1, 16 to 17 says, do not, deceive, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Okay. How can God allow bad things to happen? Well, he does, but we're seeing here in this verse, and we're going to look at this in the context of this story when we get to the end, that he uses it for good. 
In this case, the story's complex, but we're going to see things like reconciliation in a broken family, spiritual growth and refinement in its people as a whole. And then we're going to see that it ultimately is used to be the solution to the problem, the coming famine, the coming death. So let's look. Um, so there's, there's a problem, but God ordained a plan for the world to survive. And through Joseph, he gave the time and the talent to overcome the trial. This is signifying to us that there is a process that he's going to set in place. This is not an instantaneous provision. So we're going to look more at the process here, starting in verse 17. The text says, He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. God sent Joseph. I want you to let that sink in for a second. So he created Joseph, and he commissioned him in a very strange and difficult way for Joseph, but a way that we need to hear and learn as modern believers. So this process starts in Genesis 37, and this is going to show the young life of Joseph. And you're welcome to turn along if you'd like, but there's so much to refer to. I just encourage you to go back and read this after the fact. But some, some things to know about Joseph. He was the second youngest son of Jacob. He was the firstborn son of Jacob and Rachel. If you remember that story where Jacob loved Rachel and he was deceived and he was instead given seven years labor and he labored and was deceived on his wedding night and Leah was given as his wife and he labored another seven years for Rachel. So I'm sure that there's something that plays into this, but this is another thing to think about. There's partial parenting going on here. So Jacob loved Joseph. The text is very clear. He made a coat of many colors. And we can see inferences. While the brothers are sent out to do the hard work of shepherding, which is sweaty, hard, stinky, very undesirable and unattractive, Joseph's at home with his dad. And Jacob will send Joseph out to go check on them. But he's not there doing the work himself. So we also see through this, it, it has to be noted because we are influenced by our parents. The life of Jacob, as shown in Genesis, is fraught with deception and partiality, violence. So I'm sure all of this played into the parenting of Joseph and the example that he was under. How many times do we see that the sins of our parents are something that has an effect on us? And so in this... Uh, when we look at family, I mean, I think it's Vody Bauckham that says, nothing puts the fun and dysfunction like family. And I'm sure that resonates with a lot of us. But due to the parenting, which is of no fault of Joseph, there is so much sibling rivalry that's shown in the text, they can't even speak to him with anything less than hateful speech. So what they do is they conspire as Joseph's being sent to them to check on them. And they say, here comes the dreamer. Now, there's a lot of backstory I'm skipping. There's some dreams that he shared that look very unfavorable on the brothers and even on Jacob in his second dream. And so they are very much hateful towards their brother Joseph, and they conspire to get rid of him. Originally, they say, let's kill him. Then one of the brothers positions to try to save him later, unbeknownst to his brothers, and they say, let's throw him in a well. So they do. They take him. They physically assault him. And they throw him into a well with no water. 
So there's deprivation. There's imprisonment. There's powerlessness. But there's family betrayal. For anybody that's a tribalist and believes that family is the most important thing, I don't think you've read scripture. But some of our greatest and deepest hurts come from those that are our family. So I'm going to ask you, does any of this resonate with you? Can you identify with any of these struggles that Joseph has gone through? It's tough medicine to swallow. Joseph lost his personal freedom. He lost any family or social standing in the culture. So he was bound and then he was sold as a solution to not kill him and have his blood on their hands. So he's sold into slavery. But he's, through the process, he's abused, he's assaulted, he's imprisoned, he's enslaved, and everything but his faith is taken from him. All he had was his faith and his relationship with God. So I want you to think about this verse, and we're talking about the struggle he's gone through and his betrayal, his imprisonment, his difficulty. And I want us to think about this. If our relationship with God and our faith in God as we start looking at trials is the most vital thing that we have, then we should be investing in it. But it shouldn't be a partial effort. It should be our primary investment. And the time to prepare is before the trial and before the struggle so that you can easily hold on to that. Let's look more at his struggle. Verse 18, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. That description's awful. <laughs> Quite honestly, every one of us, it would turn our stomach to be chained up around our neck and around our feet. We like to think we have it bad right now, but none of us in this moment are being literally chained and bound. So Joseph's story has so much personal suffering, but thinking through, he's imprisoned by his family. He's sold as a slave to a master. He lost his freedom. But through this story, what we're going to see is he's ultimately sold to Potiphar, who's the captain of Pharaoh's guard. So God had worked in this, and I don't know the surrounding circumstances, but Potiphar needed a slave, and whoever he sent or he personally went and he purchased Joseph. But what we would see is that Joseph is going to rise in standing, in position, and in power in the house of Potiphar. So another platitude I want to talk about. You might say, oh, good, it's okay. God won't give him more than he can bear. Well, you're not Superman, you, but if it goes wrong, it also places all the responsibility of failure on you. That is man-centered garbage, period. So two things that we need to understand so that we can properly look at this. There's been a conflation of ideas that has been combined together, and we have muddied the waters on biblical understanding here. So we need to separate these things. Temptation and suffering are two different things. God does write through Paul and says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We've got to separate these two. 
We are able to escape temptation through Christ. The bonds of sin are broken. We are not required or forced to sin. Brothers and sisters, you cannot escape suffering. It's promised to us all through Scripture. If you've been with us through our first and second Peter, through our Hebrew studies, suffering is the life of a Christian. So Paul tells us some more in 2 Corinthians, and this is so good for us to understand when we think about these horrible sayings that are truly just lies that are spread around the church, that God won't give you more than you can bear. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Does that sound like Paul Superman? Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So I want us to hear that our strength comes when we no longer rely and place our faith in our own understanding and abilities, but we use those things in faith that God will strengthen and direct them. So personally, that sounds like a great saying. What do we have to do? We have to discipline ourselves to say, Lord, I have nothing left. My pain hurts My circumstances have overwhelmed me, but I will obey you. I will love this person. I will provide for my family. I will serve my brother. I will share your truth. So I hope that will resonate with you to understand and even be able to correct when a brother or sister unbiblically uses that statement. We are to rely on God and God alone. So let's move into the text here in verse 19. And God writes, Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. So some things have happened in the story between these verses. So Joseph has risen to a great position of power. He's risen to be wise and full of understanding, and Potiphar recognizes that because it's making him rich. So things happen, though, where Joseph has everything. He has all power, all command of Potiphar. Potiphar trusts him. And there's a woman, and it's Potiphar's wife. And she desires Joseph. He's a man of power and position. But apparently, he was also very good looking, according to Scripture. And so she kept making advances. And so we've looked at separating the ideas of temptation and suffering. Well, in this case... There were several accounts that were given of her advances to him, and he rebuked her. He explained to her. He staved off her attempts, and finally, she had arranged it to where they were alone, and she was going to aggressively advance herself on him, and he fled the temptation. And when he did, he left his coat in her hands. He got out of there. And so what did she do? Instead of just saying, well, that was unfortunate, She went and she lied. She bore false witness against Joseph. She accused him of heinous, horrendous things to her husband, and he believed every word of it. 
it hurts to be lied about and lied against. So Joseph went through that, but in God's providence, we're going to learn a little bit more why. So Potiphar takes this guy who was smart and wise and successful for him, and he throws him in his private dungeon. Now, what we can ascertain is that Potiphar probably had high-profile prisoners. And so also, in God's providence, two more men joined him. One was the cupbearer to Pharaoh, and one was Pharaoh's chief baker. And what's going to happen is they're going to have troubling dreams. Their circumstances are troubling, but the dreams are going to trouble them more. They don't understand why they're there. And so they're going to rely on Joseph. And Joseph is going to be given the understanding and the interpretation to be able to explain to the cupbearer and explain to the baker what will happen. So God allowed Joseph to struggle and to be grown through his imprisonment and his enslavement. This had purpose, and it was beneficial to shaping Joseph for what he must do to overcome the problem of the famine. So as I mentioned, when the timing was perfect, God caused dreams in the cupbearer and the baker, and we're ultimately going to see that God does this in Pharaoh at his appointed time. But we're looking at the text where it said the word of the Lord tested him and, and when, it, when what he had said came to pass. So when the timing, I'm sorry, uh, he caused these dreams so that he could provide the meanings and the prophecies through the mind and the mouth of Joseph. But it is noteworthy, as the text says, these are not empty or erroneous sayings, but can only come from God as the words had to match the outcome. So God provided the method and the means for Joseph to speak truth and to have his circumstances changed. So this is going to occur. He's going to interpret these dreams. And ultimately, the cupbearer is going to bear witness to Pharaoh and say, you should talk to this guy, Joseph. He can help you with your problems. But I want to ask you this, as we think about God testing us and waiting on the timing of the Lord. Why would God allow this to occur? The struggle, rising up, being cast down, going through times of imprisonment again, unjustly. Why not just give Joseph all the answers up front and skip the suffering? God was growing Joseph through this process and preparing him. So I want to share a quote with you that has had a huge impact on me recently. A.W. Tozer writes this from his book, Roots of Righteousness. And says, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. God actually rises up storms of conflict in relationships at times in order to accomplish that deeper work in our character. We cannot love our enemies in our own strength. This is graduate level grace. Are you willing to enter this school? Are you willing to take the test? If you pass, you can expect to be elevated to a new level in the kingdom. For he brings us through these tests as preparation for greater use in the kingdom. You must pass the test first. So let's address another harmful saying that creates lies as we face struggle and go through that. Frederick Nietzsche, the philosopher, said, That which does not kill us makes us stronger. Man, that thing is all over the social media sites. It's got pretty memes. It's got strong images of soldiers and overcoming. Sounds great. But it makes no sense. 
Injuries, trauma, and abuse weaken and kill things. You can't cut someone's heart and it magically gets stronger. You can't hit them over the head and they're smarter and wiser for it. People say this because they need to excuse and explain things without God. Don't buy in to evil humanistic propaganda that the world spews. This is what I want you to hear and take away from God's word this morning in this passage section. Your wounds and scars are teaching and training you in godliness, and they advance you in experience and sanctification. They do not make you stronger. They make you weaker in your own strength. You are damaged and diminished, but they drive you deeper into the strength and power of Almighty God because it's him that makes us stronger, and he has the power. So God's word tested Joseph. Things came to pass that God had given him the ability to understand and foresee. So let's look at verse 20. It says, The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. So the story continues. Let's pick back up with the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. The cupbearer and the baker had fallen out of favor with Pharaoh. And ultimately, the dreams would have two very different outcomes. The baker would be executed, but the cupbearer would be restored to favor. So as Joseph prophesied and foretold that this would happen, Joseph had one request of the cupbearer. He said, remember, we, remember me when you come before Pharaoh and his court. And what do you think the cupbearer did? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Thanks, I appreciate it, bro. And then he went right back to what he was doing and forgot about Joseph for two years. Patience, friends, patience. Waiting on the Lord, struggling and suffering with no end in sight. I thought I had my shot, but it didn't work out. Just more time for sanctification, more time for growth. But God in his timing sent dreams to Pharaoh Dreams of cows, big, fat, T-bone, sirloin-looking cows who are then eaten up by these anemic, scrawny-looking cows. And it's just driving Pharaoh out of his mind. I can't get rid of this. I don't know what this means. It troubles me. Finally, the cupbearer, oh, there was this guy that helped me with dreams two, two years ago in prison he can tell you. He can help you because no one else could. The wise men couldn't explain it. No one could provide relief to Pharaoh. But finally, the cupbearer remembers. So Joseph is brought before Pharaoh. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh says, uh-oh, there's famine coming. I don't know what to do. What should we do? And he says to Joseph, what should we do? What's the outcome, you Hebrew? And he said, you should appoint a wise man who will steward these resources, who will put together a plan. Notice that Joseph doesn't say, I'm the solution. I'll do it for you. But he relies on the Lord to provide the answer. So Pharaoh ends up appointing Joseph because of his wisdom that was provided by the word of the Lord. 
So I want to track back to two previous points and put them together, the suffering of Joseph and the deliverance by God. God's work through suffering will train you and be used in a way that defies human logic. We think we started from the bottom, we worked our way up. We've earned our standing and status. Work hard in the beginning and take it easy later. Joseph would be blessed by God and would rise to a position of power and status that would have made a pretty incredible story in itself. He went from shepherd to slave to steward of a powerful man in Potiphar. But Joseph knew the purpose was not to serve himself or to better his circumstances, but to follow the Lord in all things. By following the will of God, through using his skills when opportunities were presented, Joseph was bettered in circumstance, but he didn't lose focus of God's purpose. He chose to follow the known will of God in what was revealed at creation, that God had designed one man and one woman to be committed and covenanted together, and that no man or woman should come in between that covenant. Therefore, he chose in obedience not to sleep with Potiphar's wife. So he didn't violate God's law, but he could have had it all by worldly standards. He could have had all the power, he could have had all the prestige, and he could have had the girl. Isn't that the theme that media and movies bombard us with? I mean, even in that context, it doesn't matter if they're married, maybe he's a schlub, maybe you're James Bond or whatever that is, but that is what the world teaches us. As long as it's going good for you, forget what anybody, including God, says. It's all about the circumstances. Joseph didn't do that. Joseph stayed faithful and obedient to God. And in doing so, he sacrificed everything that he'd been given to that point. He went from imprisoned to imprisoned. Joseph's imprisonment was about principle, obedience to God, and he obeyed in all things. But Joseph's imprisonment was also about transference. God would take him from the penthouse to prison to the palace through it all. Life under Potiphar was a training ground for Joseph, but service to Pharaoh would be his magnum opus of his abilities. So brothers and sisters, when we work for God's purpose, we use our talents and resources for others, not for ourselves. And God will position us when and where we are to serve. And remember that God's trajectory is kingdom forward, not the highs and lows of human life. God is me. So let's see what the outcome of this is in, in verse 21 and 22. He says, he made him Lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions. Sound familiar? This is what Potiphar did. To bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. So I don't have it on the slides, but I want to read from Genesis 41 because I want you to hear God's words and how he describes Joseph. So Genesis 41, 39 through 42. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards, only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. This is a really cool but extremely clear display of God's power to prove prove that he reigns over all men. There is so much evil going on in the world around us. If we think about conflict in Israel, we think about what we worry about here in the United States. War in Ukraine, corruption. This is a little bit of a deviation, but this conflict that's happened, the coming elections are worth talking about and noting. Do you fear elections? Do you believe in conspiracy theories? What is it that you fear? Romans 13 is something that's familiar to all of us. I'm not going to read through it because it's so familiar, but if you don't know it, I encourage you to go back and read those seven verses. But what it does is exemplify that we are to be subject to the authorities that God sets up. We're to fear the authorities if we're doing wrong because they're a tool of God's righteousness and justice. So you might say back to me, you don't know how corrupt and evil this candidate is or this government is. Can you believe this policy? The economy's going to crash. I'm so upset at this issue. That's a very human reaction. It's okay to have preferences and thoughts. But I'm going to ask you in an ultimate spiritual sense, really? God made Joseph the smartest, wisest, and most excellent man in the world's superpower at the time, Egypt. And he used those attributes to protect the people of Israel through it. He continued to do this all through the Old Testament. The example of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with King Nebuchadnezzar. I have a lot of verses here I'm not going to read, but if you want to know the proofs, see me after. But in this And other accounts, Daniel and King Belshazzar, Daniel and King Darius, Ezra and Nehemiah with King Artaxerxes, David with with King Saul. There are so many scripture references in regard to God's power and providence over human rulers and governments. God has always protected his ethnic people, Israel, and he now protects us as the New Testament church. Until he returns, he will continue to provide and protect in his providence. So I encourage you, place your trust in him, just as Joseph did. Nothing happens that he does not know or allow and use for his purpose. He will never leave you and he will never forsake you. So we've looked through the problem. We've looked through God's process in providing Joseph, in training and preparing and positioning Joseph. So here we come to the promise in 23 and 24. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. So this is a really cool part of the story. Famine comes, Joseph's in charge. He's prepared well. He's built and filled these huge storehouses. Well, in the land of Jacob and his family, his other brothers... Things are not going well. Food is diminishing. Certain death is coming, and they understand that. So Jacob sends all the brothers, minus one, Benjamin, got to keep that partial parenting in there, 
So Benjamin is the youngest, and Benjamin is Joseph's younger brother by his mom, Rachel. So partiality on display again. But Jacob sends the brothers and says, we're going to die if you guys don't go. So we're going to scrape our money together, and we're going to go to Egypt. I hear they have food there. And God brings the brothers in this really cool way before Joseph. And Joseph recognizes them. They don't know who he is. And so Joseph begins testing his brothers. And ultimately, he says, hey, I'll help you, but I'm not giving you too much. I'm going to load you up, and I'm going to send you back, and I'm going to tell you that the way that you can prove that you're not spies in the kingdom, and the way that I'll help you further, is you've got to bring your other brother here. And so he's testing his father's heart, and he's testing his brother's intentions, because he already knows they think that they've sold this guy into slavery. So he's doing a lot of family testing here. So he sends him home, and of course, Jacob says, there is no way I'm sending my youngest son, my prized son, with you. And Reuben argues, and then ultimately, a time later, we don't exactly know how long, it's probably around two years, but a time happens where Judah then comes and says, hey, you can kill my sons if I don't bring Benjamin back. And Jacob, out of complete desperation, completely run out of options, sends him back. And they return. But I want to pause in the story here because we need to make sure that we don't miss the heart of Joseph through this. Joseph has the opportunity to be vindicated. He could, as the number two guy in all the known world, he could have had them killed. He could have let them starve. He could have exacted his vengeance and justice and been completely justified in his earthly power and authority. But not in God's justice. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 14 through 21, and this is referencing back to Deuteronomy 32, 35, but I think Paul writes it in an easier way for us to understand. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Here's the key point. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I want you to see that Joseph's faith and character would be tested again when confronted with his captors. Those who hated him for who he was and now stood depending on who he was. Joseph, their brother, but the most powerful man in Egypt, barring Pharaoh. So what does Joseph do? Genesis 50. Again, this is mentioned earlier in the story, but it's so well stated here. So uh, the same thing occurs earlier in the text, but this is really good. Jacob is getting ready to, to or Jacob, Jacob, I believe, has died when Genesis 50 is written. 
And now the brothers are fearful for Joseph's vengeance. And they fear that it may have been kindness because Jacob was still alive. And so they come and they fall before him in fear. And this is what Joseph says, and I think this really captures his heart. Genesis 50, 19 through 21. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And not, not long following that verse, it says that Joseph fell asleep. Forgiveness and the fruits of the Spirit were shown through Joseph and not the fruits of self, power, pride, and self-worth. He was not overcome with evil, but he would continue faithfully until his death in loving the family that rejected him, abused him, damaged him. That is something that only comes from God. That is unhuman, and that is the point. When we do what is opposite to sinful humanity in obedience to God, it glorifies him and it brings a great witness. So as I said, the story continued. Joseph reveals himself. Pharaoh equips the brothers to return for Jacob and the whole family says, I think it's the count is uh, 70 people are gathered in and they come to Egypt where they thrive. God gives them the land of Goshen through negotiation of Pharaoh and Joseph. So they begin to gain lands and possessions and to multiply and prosper. And here's the fulfillment of the promise. So through this struggle, through Joseph's faithfulness, through the story, the promise that was given to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob is fulfilled and will go on to be fulfilled all the way through the throne of David, the throne of Solomon. But God takes these sinful, rebellious 12 brothers and uses one to save them all, but to be the agent of fulfilling this promise. So from, uh, from slave to superstar, from problem to promise, God can do anything with your life, just as he did with Joseph. It's not a promise of prosperity, but a show of power, creativity, and capability of our God. Your circumstances and the way God uses your life may be different than that of Joseph or anyone else sitting here. You may be used in small ways or in big ways, but each one is critical to God's kingdom. And each is a matter of your faithfulness to him, not the importance of the size or the standing. Well, we started our time talking about Joseph, and we talked about the problem. We have a problem, a process, and a promise too. It's a bigger problem than the famine that the world back at that time would face. It's a spiritual famine from sin, death, and destruction, separation from God for eternity. The reward of sin is ultimate spiritual and physical suffering with no end and no hope. But God has prepared the process to be saved. God saved the world physically through Joseph and his preparations for the global famine. But Joseph can't save us here. He points to the one who can. 
Jesus Christ. Jesus was born into a family that would turn on him. Mothers and brothers, kinsmen, the very nation he created through the story of Joseph, would put him in chains, put him to death by rejecting him. In God's providence, that the world through him would be saved. Joseph's family found themselves face to face with the one they had rejected in his power and glory in Egypt as they faced survival. We will find ourselves face to face with Jesus as we face our eternity. We'll either be condemned rightly for our sins or we're going to be saved through his mercy and grace. Which will you choose? If these words have stirred something in your heart, if there's any uncertainty that you don't know which choice or which outcome you will be given, see me or see Pastor Brett after service. We'd love to talk to you about it. We want to share God's truth with you so that you can firmly hold to the promise of life in him. So we started the sermon asking, what is your misery? How do we make sense of misery? Here's how we make sense. Faith and salvation in Jesus Christ is how we make sense of misery. Through Jesus, we understand why sin and suffering exist and affect us. Through Jesus, our misery is refining us, training us, and using us for God's purpose. Misery drives us from our prideful self-reliance into, God, into trusting God's power. And misery makes us long for the promise and the future of peace and perfection in Jesus for the rest of eternity. My brothers and sisters, take heart. Don't lose hope and press on. Let's pray. <clears throat> our God, the God of our spiritual fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy and grace. We have no way through circumstance, no way through struggle, through suffering, other than through you. That you would meet us at the cross. That you would redeem a broken, sinful, rebellious people for your purpose, for your works, and ultimately for your glory. We thank you that you have any purpose for us, Lord. I pray now for my brothers and sisters here that the truth of your words would go deep in their hearts, that they would be encouraged and edified through it. Lord, remove anything in us that is not as it should be as we pursue looking like Christ. But Lord, I pray that you would be with my brothers and sisters here this morning and that you would teach them to pray for the joy of our salvation even when there is no happiness in our circumstance. Lord, we desire you and we need you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.